Good evening, my friends. Tonight our text is Genesis chapter 22. I'm going to read verses 1 through 15, just slightly different than the order of worship has. There's just so much in here, I, don't, I didn't feel like I was able to cover all of it. So, first 15 verses of Genesis 22. And when Jason assigned Joe, the other pastoral intern here at URC, he assigned Joe and I each to preach a sermon from the Old Testament. I immediately called dibs on Genesis 22. I love this chapter so much, and I have many reasons to love it. And one of it, one of those reasons is its surpassing richness. All of Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, but with this passage in particular, it just feels like these depths and the riches of God's word are, are right at the surface. You can reach out and touch them. Each phrase is dripping with weight and significance. And so in coming to this task of preaching through this chapter, I feel completely inadequate. So we need to go to God and ask that he would send his spirit to bless this time, and that especially that he would use me, who am a, simply a weak vessel, and I pray that he would use me. So let's pray together as we come to God's word. Lord, we are here, not physically, but in spirit we are gathered because we need your word, because it is life to us, because it gives understanding to those who feel lost and confused, because it is a rock of truth, a solid foundation in a world that needs truth needs grace. And so we ask that you would be present at this time to sanctify my mouth to speak your words and that you would bless the ears of everyone who's listening, that they would know and understand and accept what you would have them know about you, about themselves, about your son, Jesus Christ. Bless our time, Lord. We pray this in your strong name. Amen. Follow along with me if you would. Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, I and the boy, We'll go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. 
When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Imagine you have an alarm clock. Perhaps, at least in your opinion, the very best alarm clock in the entire world. Imagine it's so reliable that you can count on it to get you up on time for work every single day, if not hours earlier. This alarm clock goes off most insistently, even in the middle of the night. Sometimes it wakes you up when it needs to be recharged. Sometimes it becomes dirty and needs cleaning. Sometimes it just feels lonely and wants company. No matter the reason, whatever the hour of the night, your alarm clock can be depended upon that it will wake you up with an increasingly loud wailing sound. Now, some of you may be thinking, this does not sound like a very good alarm clock at all. Sounds like something of a problem, actually. But, but imagine that you, or your wife, if you're a man, worked very, very hard to bring this alarm clock into your home. The obtaining of the alarm clock was a very long, painful, inconvenient process. Perhaps you had waited anxiously for years to acquire this alarm clock. Imagine that this alarm clock is really quite adorable. And that you and your spouse plan to go to quite a bit of trouble and expense to care for and educate this alarm clock, and someday when you die, leave it most of your possessions. That sounds a little better, you think. Maybe I'll keep this alarm clock after all. Now, we know instinctively that children are better than alarm clocks. If you didn't catch the reference, I was describing a child as an alarm clock. Children are better than alarm clocks. They're far more precious. They're a heritage from the Lord. And this is how Abraham viewed his son Isaac as a precious heritage. So many decades he and Sarah had pleaded with God for an heir. So patiently they waited and endured much doubting and tears as they anticipated Isaac's arrival. So deeply they longed for this heritage from the Lord. And eventually they welcomed a son. They named him Isaac. Imagine you had waited this long for a child that you and your spouse had prayed as fervently for a child as Abraham and Sarah did. Imagine you finally gave birth to a precious son against all hope in the face of overwhelming odds. Imagine after he gave you this miracle child, the Lord asked you to give him back. What would you do? Genesis chapter 22 is designed by the sovereign will of God's spirit to illustrate this dilemma. What will Abraham do when he has to choose between his God and his son? 
between the Lord who called him out of darkness and idolatry, who came to him in the twilight years of his life and promised him a son and the very son that God had promised to give, between Abraham's heavenly treasure and his greatest earthly treasure, between God's gift and God himself. What happens when God chooses to put such a test before one of his people? That is a great question of Genesis chapter 22. I have three points tonight. Two of them at the end are, are really applications. So there's really one main point tonight, and that is that a painful test proves fear. A painful test proves fear. First, we might ask, why is a test even necessary? It seems painful, whether it's painful or not, why did God test Abraham? Why is the test necessary in the first place? Isn't God omniscient? Doesn't he know all things? What purpose could he have if he already knew what would happen? And we should not conceive of this test or define it in the same way that we typically think of a test. When humans test each other, they do so in order to learn something that they didn't know before. A teacher tests her students to learn how well they've mastered their course material. And this definition obviously won't work for God because he can't learn anything. He never does. He never learns. He already knows all things. So the results of any test will never increase his understanding. That can't be the reason that he tests. So why then? He does not do so for his benefit, but for ours. The purpose behind God's testing is to try our faith and obedience under pressure to display to ourselves and to a watching world what will Christians do when this choice, when this testing comes? What will happen when we're asked to choose between God and something else? Will we trust and obey? Or like wayward sheep, will we turn aside to our own paths? And specifically, in the context of Abraham's life, we see here that he was in need of testing. There was so much confusion about his character up to this point. He had failed before on at least two occasions. First, he had lied to his marriage, lied about his marriage to Sarah in order to protect himself from danger. And even worse, he had fathered Ishmael with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, because he doubted that God could really provide a child through his aging wife, Sarah. And so there's a predicament here in this passage. If Abraham is to become the father of God's faith-filled people, he must truly be a man of faith. In his passing or failing of this test, he was setting the trajectory for the people of God who came from him. What sort of an example would he make? Would he be a model of trust and loyalty or cowardice and deceit? In short, the question being answered by Abraham's test is, is there any criterion to being a follower of the Lord? Is God's grace cheap? The testing that Abraham underwent shows it's not always easy to follow the Lord. To be a worshiper of the true and living God will often require sacrifice. And this leads to a second question. Why is this test so painful? Our chapter illustrates with agonizing clarity, the picture of a man who is being challenged to give up everything in order to believe in God and obey him. 
this chapter calls us to abandon the idea that Christianity is something easy and light and pain-free. Some of us already know this all too well. The path of the believer is narrow and hard to walk at times. And the tests that come are in part meant to help us realize this. The path of discipleship, a life of following Jesus, is a difficult one. And each of us must count the cost. And what a difficult cost this was for Abraham. It says Moriah, the place that he went for the sacrifice, was three days away. So he had to premeditate what he was going to do and plan it out. He had to travel for those three days in the company of his son, Isaac, all the while knowing what he had to do. It must have been torturous for him. And the word son is repeated 13 times in this chapter, and often emphatically, especially in verse 2. Look again at verse 2 with me. God says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. It's almost as though he's laboring. God is, is trying hard to help Abraham see the gravity of what he's being called to do. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And we have to understand what Isaac represents to Abraham. He is his beloved son, the heir that he had waited for for so long. That in and of itself is more than enough of a reason to see the pain inherent in the test that he was being asked to go through. But even more than that, Isaac represented God's fulfillment of the grand covenant promise that he'd made to Abraham to bless all the nations of the world through this promised offspring. God had not only promised Abraham an heir, but a mighty nation of descendants, greater in number than the stars of the sky. If Isaac is destroyed, how will this promise come true? We see here in this problem how Abraham's faith is being tested. Hebrews 11 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. To receive Isaac at all in the first place was a complete miracle. And in order to pass this test, Abraham had to believe that God could do that miracle again, that he could do something equally miraculous, if not more miraculous. He had to believe that Isaac's birth wasn't just a freak coincidence or a fluke. He had to trust, to hope against hope, that God would fulfill the promise he had made. He was being asked to demonstrate in the most painful way possible that he truly believed in God's promise. So tests are painful. They're painful, but we should be encouraged that the hardship of testing will ultimately give way to hope. We will know that the cost that we paid was worth it. We may be asked to sell everything we own to purchase the pearl of great price, but we will go to our homes rejoicing at having found so great a treasure. And this leads to another question under our main point. What did God's test ultimately prove? What was the prize for Abraham? Well, it proved that Abraham feared God. Look at verse 12. Now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. 
The test that Abraham went through proved that he feared God, that he feared him above all other things. Now, what is the fear of God? I think from this passage, we see three elements. We see faith, obedience, and then worship in verse 5. When he's describing what he's about to do to these young men, what does he say? What words does Abraham choose? He says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. I don't think many of us would describe what Abraham was about to do as worship. But clearly Abraham saw it that way. So what is fear? How does fear unite these elements? Faith, obedience, and worship. Fear is reverent faith that produces obedience as an act of worship. Fear Faith that produces obedience. And, and those two being tied together is important. Faith and obedience are inseparable for the believer. They both flow from the fear of the Lord. And Abraham understood that to fear God is to believe him when he promises, to obey him when he commands, and to worship him in all of life. It's what the fear of the Lord is. Now, true faith is an obeying faith. A faithful Christian says, I believe your promises, Lord, and that heartfelt faith necessarily defers to God and listens when he commands. Faith, true faith is an obeying faith. And true obedience is a believing obedience, a faith-filled obedience. The obedient Christian grounds his submission in childlike trust towards a heavenly father. He doesn't obey in order to earn anything from God, but as an act of faith, he says, I trust that my God's commands are for my good and therefore I follow them. Faith and obedience bound up together in the fear of God. And at times God will call you to obey, to act, to get up, to follow his commands. Other times he will admonish you to rest and to wait and to rely on his promises. Usually it's some mixture of those two. And as I've already described, they go together. They mix with one another. The fear of God means that in all things we will offer God our obedience. We will rest in him, our faith and our trust. And we will do all things for his glory. This is what Abraham's test was showing. That he intended to believe God's promises. He would obey at any cost. And he saw this life that he had of following God as worship. The fear of God is what Abraham demonstrated in his test, and he passed the test. So our first application point is that a past test, P-A-S-S-E-D, past, not past, present, future, a test that we have passed produces assurance. A past test produces assurance. The good shepherd does not maliciously send his sheep into the valley of the shadow of death. Why does he do it? So that when we emerge unscathed on the other side of that test, we are all the more confident that we truly belong to him. Assurance comes from this testing process. Only the true flock of God triumphs through the tempest. We might not be unscarred by our trials. In fact, we probably will be. But if in the end, the test serves to increase our fear and obedience, 
our faith, we can rest assured that God has held us fast. It's not that we trust in our own obedience to earn God's love, but when we pass the test of obedience, we do so by God's grace. And therefore, we know that he is working in us and will continue to do so. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. Furthermore, testing not only shows that we are disciples, but it strengthens our discipleship. It's in heating and tempering metal that it becomes able to withstand great pressure. The tests of the Lord are not merely to prove that we do love and trust him, but to make that love and trust deeper, more abiding and resilient. 1 Peter 1, 5 through 7 says, You are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. A goldsmith doesn't put gold in the fire just to heat it up. As the precious metal passes through the flames, impurities are burned away, and the gold emerges from the fire more precious than when it went in. So God's saints can take deep and abiding comfort in the knowledge that their Heavenly Father uses the trials that they undergo to test and therefore strengthen their faith and obedience. He does not afflict us arbitrarily or cruelly. He sends us trials deliberately and lovingly, knowing that as we suffer, we grow in dependence on Him. Our hope in His promises deepens. And we become more diligent to follow the Lord even when it's hard. So when we go through tests, our assurance deepens when we see how God is holding us. Lastly, our second application, a preeminent God provides grace. At this point in the sermon, you might be saying, this sounds hard and it sounds very me-focused. It sounds like there's a lot of an emphasis on me and what I have to do and I have to prove myself as a Christian this point is meant to remind us all of our lives as Christians are lived in the strength and the grace that God has promised and that he provides from start to middle to finish. It is only by his grace that we will reach the finish line. First, God provides what we need just to obey him. Here, I'm just going to read some promises from Scripture. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 2 Corinthians 9.8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that, having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Luke 22, 31 to 32, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Last John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. To every saint who faces these trials with doubt and trembling, wondering if they'll be able to pass the test, hear this, the word of God offers you these promises and more promises beside that to reinforce your confidence. God will not let his children fail. He will protect them from the evil one. He will give them the grace they need to pass the test. In this life, there will be trials to endure, but none of them must be faced alone, not one. You never have to be without the strength and the grace that God provides to his beloved ones. There are tests, but God strengthens us to pass them. Finally, most importantly, God provides the grace we need in order to be saved. New Testament Christians are meant to see in this passage, in this story of Abraham and Isaac, a parallel with their God, whose son was slaughtered, the father who did not withhold his son, his only son. Look, Christian, look at Abraham laying the wood of the offering on his beloved son, leading him to the mountain of sacrifice, and see Jesus Christ, the only son of God who bore the wooden cross up the road, the weary road toward the mountain outside Jerusalem. Look at Christ, the beloved son whose life was offered up at great cost to his heavenly father. Watch, Christian, watch as Abraham turns from the dreadful altar of sacrifice and sees the ram caught by his horns. Watch as the hope dawns in his eyes as he realizes that Isaac, who was moments away from death, is rescued from that terrible fate because of the ram that was put forward in his place. Watch and remember Jesus Christ, your substitute, the Lamb of God who takes away your sins. Do you see these two rich gospel images in Genesis 22? Christ was both the beloved son offered in sacrifice and the ram who would take the sinner's place. This is the gospel, the message that Christians love to tell, the truth that turns the world upside down, our only comfort in life and in death. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, he who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, will give us all things. Jesus was delivered up, Acts chapter 2 says, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It is God the Father who raised the knife against his only begotten son. And this is the ground of all Christian hope. It's the story of the father who loves his people so much that he does not withhold his precious son, but puts him forward as a propitiation for sins. The words of the angel of the Lord, now I know that you fear God, Abraham, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. The Christian hears the gospel mirror of those words. Now I know, Father in heaven, now I know that you love me. Seeing you gave your son, you have not withheld your only son from me. There's a phrase repeated twice in this chapter. Abraham lifted up his eyes. The first time he does this, it's to see Moriah, the, the mountain of sacrifice. The vision that greets him is, is full of dread. He sees the place of which God had told him, the site where he would offer Isaac as a burnt offering. The second time Abraham lifts up his eyes, what he sees brings him hope. 
he sees a ram caught by its horns, an unlikely victim, unexpected, but exactly what he needed. Dear Christian, this passage warns us about tests that will come, encourages you to meet those trials with faith and obedience, to allow these sufferings to strengthen your fear of the Lord. But most of all, most of all, this story invites you to lift up your eyes toward the cross and to see what Abraham saw. Look and see the mountain where God the Father, out of the depths of his love for you and me, wields the terrible knife of his wrath against his only begotten son. And look up to see the ram in your place, your substitutionary savior, the lamb of God who takes away your sin. Now we know God loves us, for he did not withhold his son, his only son, but delivered him up for us all. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a savior. Let's pray. What, what praise might we offer you, Lord, for your goodness to us? Such a beautiful picture. Reminder of the life you call us to, the tests that we will face, and the grace that you give for us to face those tests, always grounded in Christ, always trusting in him, always knowing that he loved us first. So now we can love him with our lives because he has saved us, he has bought us, he has changed us. Oh, give us eyes, Lord. Help us to lift up our eyes and see this Savior and to pass through all the tests knowing that you are with us and that you did not spare your only son for us and therefore you will give us the strength we need to persevere. In Christ's name we pray, amen.